Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Blog Talk Radio. Stefron and you're listening to the Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Because he has a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Monday, March 5th, 2012, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am Matthew Zachary, a 16-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And I'm Lisa Bernhardt, 16-year young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay. It's not okay. That 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so, got cancer, under 40, sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show, it's going to be a great one. It is all about the Children's Hospital of L.A. and their Teen Impact Hope Program. Joining us is Aura Cooperberg. She's the director of the Teen Impact Hope Program at the Children's Center for Cancer and Blood Diseases within the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. Also, Octavio Zavala. He's the program administrator for the Teen Impact Program. And David Fryer, he's a DO, MS, Medical Director, Hope Survivorship and Transition Services at the Children's Center for Cancer and Blood Diseases at the CHLA. And in the Survivor Spotlight, kicking it off, Stacey Gagas, Young Adult Survivor Breast Cancer. She's a resource specialist at another hospital, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And she also works with the National Breast Cancer Coalition. And we'll hear all about what she's got going on, Matthew. All right, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. Online all the time at stupidcancer.org. We are not your father's cancer society. No, we're not. But we are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight yes, where it belongs. So welcome aboard another fun and exciting romp to the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show where remission is not a cure. And survivorship is all that matters. And a stupid cancer welcomes any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes. Don't forget, download us for free. 
as we broadcast live tonight and every Monday night, 8 p.m. ET, that's right, from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. And as a final reminder, the Stupid Cancer Show has a live interactive chat room. During each and every show, we invite you to join in the fun, connect with our friends, and ask questions of our guests. And with that, we give ourselves hello, hello. a round of applause. As we always do. And we'll say hello to Mr. Kenny Kane. What up, what up? How you hello, doing, Ginge? I am well, thank you. And the Reverend James Manning. Hello, guys. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, James. Good to have your seat back. Uh, well, <laughs> any seat's fine with that. He got booted last week. Yeah, he had he's a in the room house. this week. <laughs> You're in the room. Right? I'm in the room, but it seems like a nightmare that James is l- listening from the annex. There you go. Kenny, Kenny what's up? Um, healing. Uh, in a state of detox. Right, because last week... We were all over the We had just... We, last week's show was in between two Correct. major trips. Correct. Where were we? Um, <laughs> so we, we had just gotten back from New Orleans, where we actually saw Stacy. I saw Stacy on Bourbon Street. You did a lot of, a lot tell of us sleeping. A, tell us the folks who Stacy is. Right, Not so everybody knows who Stacy is. Stacy is our first guest this evening. Stacy Gagas. Correct. Saw her at C4YW. There's I saw her too, I think. There's Stacy Owens. You did. And then yeah. on Bourbon yeah. Street. Right. Um, but you did not go to Bourbon Street because you're an old man. I went to Bourbon Street on the, on Sunday with you. Right when people during don't, the day. when people don't look as good. <laughs> um, so anyway, we after got, they clean up the vomit from the correct. streets. Right. So we'd gotten back from New Orleans. We did the show last week, and then we thought it'd be a great idea to just go to the airport, not go home and and get a few hours of sleep. That is true. We actually went right to the airport so, after the show. Yeah, we left here at like 1 a.m. and went to JFK, and we wound up in Vegas. For we wound up in Vegas. <laughs> we weren't planning on it. But we wound up in Vegas. We, we spun the bottle for destination. <laughs> wound up in Vegas. And you uh, two play spin the bottle together. That's cute. That's that's, that's cute. Dear human resources. Right. You went to uh, from one party town to another. Basically, correct. Way correct. The two biggest which party is, towns. Which is why I am in detox. <laughs> my, my voice has just come back. It was a nice hazing. Right. Well, you're you're a young man. And you can, should be out doing that kind of thing. Kenny had never been in either New Orleans nor no. Las Vegas. Oh. So. So you had a huge initiation. It's like, it's like um, the, the lyric from No Sex in the Champagne Room when he says, you're going to die twice. Right. <laughs> I, I almost died twice. This is right. like your stupid cancer hazing. It, it was. was. Yeah, exactly. I test drove Vegas for everyone. But we spent two days at the Palms doing all final uh, check-ins and logistics and planning and coordination. We'll the, say that's what yeah. we did. Yeah. But that's most of what we did. No, it is. Well, did you we, gamble, Kenny? I, I played like the dollar thing at the bar where it's like it's... Embedded into the bar counter, like the it's like the old Pac-Man machine. machine. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I stayed away from the table. You played really? bar poker. I, I think I I wound up spending about two hundred and fifty dollars on alcohol in one night, <laughs> which I'm told is good. La- you know what? Last time I was in Vegas, I won about three fifty at the blackjack table. Thank you. Can I just say that if you were actually gambling while you got those drinks, they'd be free. Yeah. Well, I I was and especially if you were in a low cut dress. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to uh, I'll have to rent one. Right. Uh, but oh, I have someone's phone isn't on vibrate. I have a little text message. Pardon. Lisa's fans yeah. are texting. In. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. By the droves. So in any case, we were really, really uh, excited about being at the Palms, knowing oh, we're going to be exactly. back there in three weeks and in four weeks, and um, everything is everything is on track. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a collision course. It is. It's like once you program it in, you cannot stray from your. We have reached course. the point of no return. Correct. But it's going to be epic. It's going to be epic. So then we got back said. on like Thursday morning and like at like one in the morning or something, right? Yeah, it's just it was horrible. It was it was a rough. Well, day. our flight was supposed to leave at like six a.m. and then right. it left at like six p.m. Travel curse. Yeah. So Matt took to Facebook to bitch. Yes. 
So exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess we get the what? store. Oh yeah, we launched. Go ahead, Kenny. Big merchandise Kenny gets store. more props again in like an hour yeah. and a half. He launches our store. So we now no longer have a middleman to purchase our stupid cancer wristbands, family friendly or middle finger, uh, whichever you prefer. You can go to stupidcancerstore.org, or if you go to .com, you'll end up in the same place. But it's stupidcancerstore.org, and you can now purchase wristbands directly from us. Says us, and uh, James will pack them and ship them. <laughs> And it will actually show up on your credit card bill as stupid cancer. As, yes, I think that's the coolest thing. So yeah. If, yeah. Like if you see like random charges from stupid cancer, mom, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> but it won't say because so, sometimes you order something and there's that sort of like funky middleman right. corporate like name a, a that New comes York, up a and New York you're like City taxi. Yeah, right. And, right, and you go what? Be like, what, like, what was that? Now you'll know exactly yes. what you got, who it's from. Mustafa Greenberg. <laughs> <laughs> And the other thing I wanted to talk about was the you know the, this Rush Limbaugh thing. <sighs> it's about women's health in young women, and that's why it really bothered me. It, uh, irrelevant to the fact that he's a to- total tool that I just despise beyond rational thought. But this woman—that that is a rational thought. I despise with <laughs> rational thought. Yes. Beyond and within rational thought, perhaps. <laughs> Correct. If, if that's possible. The um, I I believe from what I understand from what I read and what I heard, she was testifying with regard to the fact that contraception should be made available to employees when it is not for recreational use but for medical need. I might be wrong on this, but I do remember reading something on the Huffington Post about the fact that she either had some, some uh, an ovary problem or she was representing people that had hormone deficiencies and the, being well, on the pill helped regulate them you know what, Matthew, regardless. Yes, I think you're, here's something from the Hoya, the Georgetown University uh, newspaper, that says that... Um, Georgetown, that, that what's often been overlooked is one critical de- detail, that the uh, Georgetown Law Student Insurance covers prescriptions to treat polycystic ovarian syndrome. So the written testimony of Sandra Fluke actually admits this in the story of a friend who needed birth control for non-pregnancy preventative measures. Anyway, whatever the case, this is, this is like suppressing women. I'm sorry. That's, this is to me what this is about. Right, but Putting I, women down. Go ahead. No, but it's... It, 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 the whole point is that it wasn't about anything with sex. It was about women's health and women's rights. And if you have the polycystic, you are susceptible to ovarian cancer. You need to be regulated. It's a big issue. This is an issue of cancer prevention and risk reduction. I agree. I also think if it is a question of sex, it also should be covered. No, I understand that, but I, it just lends that much more of the uh, idiot of the year, millennium, and eon uh, award to uh, to Mr. Limbaugh and cruel and ruthless and cold. Right. And then you know uh, his comments are beyond anything. Anyway, he's had seven sponsors pull out in a week, so let's hope more. That's not all who's pulled out. Yeah, uh-huh. let him Speaking hit, of hit us with a rim shot. Speaking of pulling Ew. out, speaking of pulling out contraceptives and all that sort of stuff, there is a tin in your room at the Palms Casino if you're coming to OMG 2012 that will cost you twenty five dollars if opened. The Trojan Fire and Ice. So, oh, so there's a there's a plug for. I didn't notice that. Well, I'm married. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not going to touch that. And it, therein. It had the, the trail mix, the the Trojan, the champagne. Oh, it was it was like it's, a, it's a like snack a, yes. kit for real. Well, you're in Vegas, baby. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh well. All right. 
I'm bored. 811. <laughs> That's not a good sign. <laughs> Who's left in the chat room? Oh, uh, they're all gone. They're all oh, gone. Oh, no. All right. Well, let's bring out our first guest here. Stacy Gagas is a two-and-a-half-year breast cancer survivor who now works as a resource specialist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. She also works as a trained advocate for the National Breast Cancer Coalition, working towards their mission to end breast cancer by the year 2020. Outside of her advocacy work, Stacy likes to spend her free time traveling, having fun, living life with great friends, and posing with Matthew and Kenny at their booth at breast cancer conferences. Please welcome Stacy Gagas. Stacy. How are you guys? How you doing? Hi, Stacy. Good. I, I love the line that you um, inserted at the end of my bio. Well, you're lucky you sent us a bio because people that don't, we make something up, and it's usually like the uh, Doctor Evil's, uh, you know, story of club feet and shorn testicles. So. Yeah, there was no way I was going to leave that to your discretion. <laughs> right. You were much smarter than I thought. Damn it. <laughs> she didn't. She didn't want the shorn testicles. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't have mattered anyway. So. No way. Oh God. So. You know, this is how my brain works. I was like, great singer at C4W, and then I like, you are a breast cancer survivor. I didn't put those two together. Yes, absolutely. That's yeah. just my epic fail as your, a human. Your elevator does not go to the top. It does not. <laughs> it's been two and a half years, and in some in some days it feels like it's been ten years, and sometimes it feels like it's been like ten days. So. I understand. You're speaking, to, you're speaking to a fellow breast cancer survivor. We want to hear all about your story, Stacy. Two right, and a half I years ago? So. Yeah, two and a half years ago, um, I felt a lump in my breast, and I went to the doctor, and he said, of course, you know, I was 28 at the time, he was like, you know, no possible way this could be breast cancer, your mother doesn't have breast cancer. I was like, well, you know, there is, you know, um, a genetic history with my great-grandmother and my grandmother, they were like, oh, still, we don't think so, but we'll watch it. So um, I basically, you know, pushed for it to be followed up on, and they did a biopsy, and I was like, you know, what if of course, you're all anxious, and you're like, well, you know, what are the chances that this could be cancer? And they're like, oh, you know, 1% or less. Like, we wouldn't even have to do the biopsy. And then it, it came back as malignant. So I guess just a lesson out there to, you know, follow, I guess, you know, follow your gut. I have a very similar story, same thing. Mother didn't really? have, but had, but had my grandmother and my great aunt. Uh, when, and I was 29, and I had gone, and I had actually been a year before, a whole year before, and they said this kind of feels like nothing. Yeah. And then a whole wow. year, yeah, very similar story. So now the good news is that's 16, count them 16 years ago at this point. But wow, I understand. Fantastic. Yeah, so um, I, I totally hear what you're saying. So then you went, so what kind of treatment did, did you then go through and, and surgery? Um, so I went on to have a lumpectomy, chemotherapy, and radiation. Okay. And is that all? Yeah. And, yeah. Is that all, right? It's like a full service <laughs> car wash. <laughs> yeah, right. And so you're so, you're you're through with tre- treatment, right? Because you were first diagnosed over two years ago, you said. Yeah. So I've been through with treatment for almost two years. Okay. And any lasting? Are you doing tamoxifen or anything else? I'm doing tamoxifen. Yeah. So I mean, so I guess I'm not through with treatment technically, depending on how you define it. I'll take that for five years. You still got the rocking hair, though. That's true. I still got the rocking hair. I I decided not to grow it out. Cool. I was like, you know, I don't I know. Think, I, I think figured. a lot of people do that after cancer. They realize, oh, this is what I look like with short hair. Yeah, right. It's like, you know what? Short hair's not that bad, and I actually don't want to grow it out. So, I don't know. Uh, it seems like, seems like me now, so. 
And how are you feeling on the tamoxifen? Side effects? What's your what's your kind of quality of life like these days being on the drug? Actually, I've been I've been okay. I you know I consider myself you know pretty lucky. Um, I really haven't had that many side effects um, at all, really. Um, so you know um, that's pretty much it with that. I hope it's working. <laughs> you know. <laughs> were, you, were you at Dana Farber two and a half years ago? I was not. No, I was at Beth Israel. Um, but you were still had, working in medicine. Um, well, I was working with young kids, actually, kids with mental health issues. Um, so, no, not not really in medicine, but in, in uh, psychology. So did you happen to want to work at Dana-Farber because you got sick, or it just sort of worked out that way? Absolutely, yeah. Like, after, you know, after I got sick, maybe a year after, I started looking into things I could do, looking into advocacy work found the National Breast Cancer Coalition, thought that was a pretty awesome organization. I really liked, you know, how they kind of put the truth out there and had a deadline set, you know, to end breast cancer, metastasis from breast cancer um, by 2020. And so I got kind of a little bit of a taste of that, and then I decided that really, like, you know, I wanted to be involved with this full time. So then I set my sights kind of looking at hospitals in Boston, kind of seeing, you know, if I could sort of change careers and what I could do to kind of make a difference, you know. And, and um, is it was it weird transition to work at a cancer center being a survivor? You think it like helped helps you do your job better? I think it's a yeah, it's a little bit of both. I definitely think it helps you do your job better in certain aspects. I mean, not one hundred percent. I mean, just because you're a cancer survivor doesn't mean that you know you can do a great job as like a cancer advocate or a resource specialist. Um, you know, I definitely think you understand sort of you know what people are going through. Um, a little bit, but it's a, it's a tough transition, too, you know, because you still have things you're going through, you still have fear of recurrence, and, you know, when you see it sort of 24-7, it's, you know, it, it can be, a, it, it was a little bit of a rough transition, but I absolutely love it, and I have fantastic supervisors, so I consider myself very lucky. So where was your where was your treatment? Were you treated at Beth Israel, or you were treated up at Dana-Farber, or neither? Beth Israel, so basically, right across the road at Beth Israel, I was treated, and then I have this amazing surgeon who was following up on me, and she actually moved over to Dana-Farber. Oh. So I just ended up, ended up kind of switching my care over to Dana-Farber because she was just so amazing. I didn't want to kind of lose her follow-up and, you know, sort of thinking if anything happened in the future, I just kind of wanted to go with her. Um, so I actually switched oncologists as well and just moved over to Dana-Farber. So she just coincidentally went to Dana, and you were going there as well? Well, she went to Dana-Farber first. And so I just that so I sort of followed her, and then Dana Farber at the time. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, it has a great name and everything. It's an excellent institute, but I was definitely looking at Beth Israel, um, you know, Mass General, all of the hospitals. But it just so happened that Dana Farber had an opening that I kind of fit into. Right. And were you, how was your how was your treatment at, at Beth Israel? Did, were you ple- Were you happy with it? Did they sort of treat you age appropriately? Um. Hmm. You know, I would say um, surgery-wise and talking to the surgeon and those discussions were excellent. I think sometimes in oncology, people just want to throw the kitchen sink at you in terms of treatment and don't really want to ask you a whole lot of questions or really, you know. And so I had a real tough time with oncology over there. I only had one oncologist. Um, But, you know, you really have to speak up for yourself and ask questions because, you know, it's just, I mean, if you don't, there's really no way to kind of go back and reverse the damage done. So how much, how, 
did they lay out a lot of options for you? Did they sort of say to you, I mean, I don't know how were were you how big your tumor was or what stage you were at? I mean, did they say you could have a lumpectomy or a mastectomy? Did they explain to you all the reconstructive options with like, you know, if you went the mastectomy route, did they explain any reconstructed or if you had any with the uh, with a lumpectomy, I mean, did they kind of lay everything out, or did they just sort of say, "Here's what we think you should do"? They did. Well, my first doctor was at a local hospital, my first surgeon, and he was kind of just like, you know, um, <laughs> kind of like second opinion. You know, second opinion. You should always get a second opinion, especially if you feel uncomfortable with the first. Like he was just kind of like, you know, just I I told you about this yesterday, just kind of you know things like that. And he was like, you know, this is what you should do. This is your only option, I was like, okay, I'm going for a second opinion. And with you said local hospital, where was that? Uh, that was in, let's see, uh, Framingham. Okay. So in what, Long Island? So, oh, Framingham, Massachusetts. Oh, Massachusetts, okay. Right. But, okay. So, Framingham. Anyways, ended up, um, you don't know Framingham? It's, an epi- it's, a, it's a megalopolis. And yeah. no, nobody lives on Long Island. <laughs> Framingham, come on. Um, no, but... Um, yeah, so anyways, the surgeon gave me plenty of options. I actually went to see a reconstructive surgeon, um, and, you know, she was, she was fantastic. She really kind of laid out all the options and was really into kind of breast-conserving surgery. So, you know, I mean, a couple years ago, what, you know, what would be the trend in medicine? I'm not sure. So, you know, it's always kind of, I'm always keeping up with medicine and hoping that I got the right treatment, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, uh, Stacey, uh, tell everyone what a resource specialist is. What, what do you do at Dana-Farber? Uh, I'm not sure. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want that person you keep on your cashing your paycheck, so. So, yeah, right. So it's basically um, concrete resource needs. So anything from someone who can't afford a wig to someone who needs, you know, to stay in Boston to someone who has financial troubles, trouble affording their medicine, all sorts of those things kind of fall under like concrete needs that I would take care of. Is, is totally that take care of. Is, is, is that easily confused with a patient navigator? Um, hopefully not. I mean, <laughs> the hope is that the doctors would, you know, and I think we do a pretty good job at, at that at Dana Farber at least, just kind of you know pointing people in the right direction. Um, but I think the problem is that a lot of people don't even know that resource specialists exist in general in hospitals, like. You know, so I always say to people, you know, ask if there's a resource specialist, ask if there's a patient advocate, because um, there are so many people who just don't even know they exist. So whose job is it to let the patients know that you exist? Probably between the doctors and the social workers. So, so, so the question is, do they know you exist? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, my phone rings all day, so I think most people know that I exist. Um, yeah. I think they do a pretty good job, at least at DC, uh, you know, Dana Farber, at kind of letting people know that, you know, that the service is there. And, um, you know, I think it depends if you have a social worker or not, too. If you don't have a social worker, if you have a social worker, they'll definitely know to point you in our direction if you're having issues. But, you know, sometimes people are embarrassed to bring things up to their doctors, you know, so sometimes not everyone gets referred to us. So you deal with a wide range of patients. I mean, how many, how many your age approximately do you deal with? Um, quite a few, actually. Um, yeah, I would say, um, you know, in terms of breast cancer cases, maybe a quarter, you know, and, and I don't know if that's because, you know, that you have limited resources or, you know, limited health insurance when you're young 
Um, but I would, you know, I would definitely say that a large majority of people that I work with in, in terms of my breast cancer service um, is, is actually pretty high. So a quarter, a quarter of the women that you deal with who get breast cancer are young adults? I would, yeah, I, I, I'm approximating, you know, but, um, yeah. yeah, I would say about a quarter. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, is a lot. That's, yeah. that's definitely a lot. Um, yeah, I'm always surprised. So so many women, you know, 40 and under, um, definitely need our service. Remind me, so... Uh, Dana Farber doesn't have a, and Matthew, you know this better than I, they don't have a sort of specific young adult. Oh, they do. Oh, yeah. They have We've a big had, one. Oh, yeah. We've Dr. had them on the show. Karen Fasciano and yeah. um, um, Re- uh, Ryan. For all young adult cancers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In fact, they're having a conference. Stacey, you want to tell us about the event coming up? You know what? I actually uh, don't feel too much for that conference, so I actually don't she know exactly when it is. Is it she the want to 24th <laughs> of March? Yeah, I think it's next weekend, next Saturday. John Immerman from Immerman Angels. He's a young adult testicular cancer survivor. He's speaking at the, uh, I forget what they're calling it this year, but it's it's a young adult um, uh, day conference at Brigham and Williams, or Women and Brigham's, or whatever it's called. Williams <laughs> yeah. and Sonoma. <laughs> Brigham and Women's, right? Brigham and Women's and Dana Farber are kind of partners. So, yeah, they're having a, con- uh, uh, a conference pretty much you know, all day on the 24th, and I'm not sure of the details of it because I don't work in, um, you know, young adult cancers, but, um, but yeah, so that should be interesting. I actually may go to see how it turns out. Yeah, I think I think we uh, we, we had uh, made a, a, a um, what do call it, a black market under the table deal that you'd uh, you do some special ops for us. <laughs> special ops. Well, they're not special ops now that they're on yeah, the radio. Yeah, d- don't tell the entire listenership. No one's listening <laughs> to the show. Just <laughs> No, no, no. I, I actually... Um, brought your pamphlets you do proud of me i brought them down to the resource uh center where lots of people come through um That's awesome. so that should be great so all your um stupid cancer stuff is down there so i'm hoping lots of young adults will will, will grab that up we'll have to leave a trail of peep from the patient rooms down there <laughs> <laughs> tell us a about what you do uh specifically with the uh national breast cancer coalition so so the National Breast Cancer Coalition has this mission, you know, that they set about a year ago. They've been around for 20-plus for years doing amazing work, but basically they've set a deadline to end breast cancer by 2020, which is right. sort of interesting enough in itself. Right. Um, and they have kind of uh, an advocacy training um, that I go to every year. Actually, this year it's the annual Advocate Summit, which is from May 5th to the 8th this year. Um, and it's pretty cool. It ends on a lobby day, and, you know, you get to go, you know, you know, uh, to the Capitol building and, you know, participate in Lobby Day, which is cool. And basically, like, the newest, like, the absolute, like, you know, real-time issues, like, going on in breast cancer. Um, and I went to a project they have called Project LEAD, which is also, like, a week-long training, basically breast cancer science and exactly what's going on. So you can actually sit at the table as an advocate and make informed decisions as a consumer. Um, so... Basically, what I'm doing, like, right now is just kind of grassroots advocacy, trying to get people to go to the conference, trying to get people trained, trying to let people know about Deadline 2020, sign a petition on their website. Um, so just things like that. It's a really interesting organization because I believe that, I mean, they really have the facts. You know, in October, um, they had 31 truths, I think, for the whole month of October. So you could go to their website or they would email you, you know, 31 truths in October about breast cancer. And it was interesting because today... I was reading an article by Fran Bisco, who's the president. Sorry to go on about this, but 
<laughs> the irony of it. Breast Cancer Awareness Month is that by the end of the month, there were significantly more misunderstanding in the public about the disease, which I just thought was pretty interesting. Misunderstanding you about know, the disease, you said? Yeah, so basically at the end of October, people were more confused <laughs> at the end of um, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. More confused about about the, the disease itself? About the disease, about facts, you know, um, just all different things. Like, you know, one minor one is that, you know, she was talking about how, you know, people believe that if you find breast cancer earlier, you have mammography, you have a 98% chance of being cured, which is not true. But, you know, it's just the portrayal in the media in October and just all of the information that's coming at us. Yeah. You know, I mean, they actually did a, did a, a study and figured out that the end of, at the end of October, people who watched the news were actually more confused about the disease. Right, right. Camp news. Now, who who was your support group when you were going through treatment? Parents, partners, siblings, friends? Um, definitely friends, definitely my partner, um, my family for sure. Um, you know, I did things like I went to a Live Strong retreat. Uh, I went to First Descent sort of after after the fact. I never went to an official um, support group, which I'm sure is helpful and I probably should have done and may do in the future. Yeah. I mean, were you just, what was your, were you just completely like utterly and totally blindsided? I mean, had you known anybody your age who'd been diagnosed with anything like this before? I mean, what was your, or did you just pack an unbelievable wallop that you then had to, you know, dust yourself off and say like, okay, now this is, this is real? Yeah, definitely not. I mean, I, I don't think I had, yeah, I don't think I actually had known anyone who had had cancer at such a young age. So for me, I know I have family history of it, but still, when you're thinking about breast cancer in 28 years old, it's still kind of like, uh, this this can't happen. And that's what's sort of, you know, what the doctor said as well. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, it's it's tough because a lot of people don't know. I mean, I'm sure you guys know. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, but a lot of people don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. You lose a lot of friends. You gain some friends. Um, you're not the same afterwards. Your hair starts to grow in and everyone thinks that you're kind of back to normal, but you're never really the same person again. At least that's my opinion of it, sort of. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, the whole the whole process is just very interesting, <laughs> <to say the least. laughs> of, you know, becoming like the new, you know, your new normal. Exactly. Well, we've got to wrap. Um, terrific. I'm, I'm jealous. I'm the only one who hasn't met you in person, so hopefully that'll change soon. You need to go down to Bourbon Well, are you going to be in Vegas? I am, I am. Then I will see you in Vegas for sure. Excellent. Um, I, I like calling you Lady Gagas, but your real name is 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 Gagas. Is that how you pronounce it? Gagas. Gagas. Call me Lady Gaga. It's fine. <laughs> Hopefully, someone will cut me her paycheck. I'm sure you've never heard that before. <laughs> Pretty yeah. As soon as she came out on the scene, I was like, you know what? I was born before her, so right. technically. <laughs> right, Stacy. I will see you at the bar in Vegas. Yeah, and I'll see you in okay. Vegas. Not at the bar, yeah. but I'll just see you there. Last time I saw you, we were on Bourbon Street, so we're, I'm not, yeah, I'm not we sure were, how yeah. professional that makes us look. Our relationship is based on drinking. <laughs> <laughs> drinking? Uh, anyway, thanks for having me on, you guys. All right, thanks All right, so much, Stacy. We'll take see care. Soon. See you in Vegas. Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, get to the news here real quick, and then we'll hit our Hello, guests up. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Oh, it's so dramatic. It is. 
Okay, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announce to our listeners a whole bunch of newsworthy programs, events, and services that we don't want you missing out on. They're all free, and they're all just for young adults with cancer. Things like conferences, happy hours, retreats, kayaking and mountain climbing trips, finance webinars, college scholarships, bar curls, concerts, tweet-ups, support groups, and more. If you have something coming up that you'd like us to spread the word about during this part of the show, please send us an email to info at stupidcancer.com. That's info at stupidcancer.com. Take it All away. All right. The place to go, everybody, is events.stupidcancer.com. That's where you find out everything, everything, everything that's happening and in our social and educational events nationwide. Stay in the loop because something could be happening in your neck of the woods. We don't want you missing out. What's coming up, Kenny? Saturday, March 10th in uh, North Carolina, the Triangle. We have a Stupid Cancer Happy Hour. Uh, Friday, March 16th in Corona, California, Monster Energy. Nice. So I'm going to say really sick, awesome indoor go-karting fundraiser. Uh, sick and awesome. Sick and awesome simultaneously. Sick whilst awesome. <laughs> and then there's going to be a lot of local events happening from uh, New York to L.A. and Vegas. <laughs> uh, Hello. Big announcement next too. week. Yeah. With, without being too specific. Right. Uh, followed ultimately by the OMG Cancer Summit, which is at the end of the month at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas. All right, right, Matthew. All right, the Stupid Cancer Forums have over 2,500 members. This is your premier online support community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.com and sign up with one click through Facebook. Team Stupid Cancer has five, count them, five slots left for, not the half marathon, the biggie, the big one, the mother of them all, the 2012 ING New York City Marathon people, five slots left. Don't miss your chance to be a part of our inauguration into this prestigious race. Email info at stupidcancer.com. That is info at stupidcancer.com for more details. All right, the fifth annual OMG Cancer Summit, as mentioned before, is only three and a half weeks away, and we are all sold out. Over 500 people have registered. There is a waiting list, but we are getting cancellations. So if you've been hesitant, do sign up. We uh, can't guarantee you get in, but odds are you will. Uh, so go online to omg2012.org and get on board for the hippest event in all of Cancerland, says us. Uh, again, at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas, New York. Uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> I don't know where Las Vegas, New York is, but I'm going to go there it's next a, time. It's a little shit town up, up there. <laughs> All right, here we go. And that is your stupid cancer news. And now it's time to introduce our guest. We're going to get this song. Who, who's going to do the uh, honors for each, Matthew? All right, I'll do. Uh, I'll take Aura and Octavio, and I'll give you David. Oh, sure. I love David. David's the best. Yes. Go ahead. Okay. Or Kuberberg obtained her doctoral degree in social work from the University of Southern California in 1994 and has a dual master's in social work and gerontology from USC. She founded Teen, Teen Impact in 1988 when she saw the need to create a special community for teens battling cancer. Dr. David Fryer is the newest member of the Hope Survivorship Clinic at the Children's Hospital Los Angeles. His clinical and research activities have focused on cancer survivorship, healthcare transition, and the recognition, management, and prevention of short and long-term morbidity of treatment. He's also involved in adolescent and young adult oncology, palliative care, and decision-making at end of life. 
She graduated magna cum laude. He's smart. From DePaul University, obtained his medical degree from Des Moines University College of Osteopathic Medicine and Surgery. Mm-hmm. And completed postgraduate training at Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine and Hospitals, Rush University Medical Center, and the University of Michigan Medical Center. We've got pretty much his entire resume. Not, all I'm, his schooling, all his... I'm not impressed. He's got a lot of plaques on the wall. Uh, Octavio Zavala is the program coordinator for the Teen Impact Hope Research Program at CHLA. He was diagnosed himself. He didn't diagnose himself. He was diagnosed himself <laughs> with leukemia when he was 12 years old. He's off, also awfully smart. <laughs> he diagnosed himself at 12 years old. Yes. Uh, while receiving treatment at CHLA, he joined the newly founded Teen Impact Program back then. He eventually went on to graduate from UCLA and worked as a counselor in various healthcare programs. He returned to Teen Impact because he kind of had to out of guilt. And, uh, and that's all I have to say. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Octavia Zavala, David Fryer, and Aura Cooperberg. Oh, hello. That's great. Hello. Hello. I just hello, want to hello. say about that guilt combo. <laughs> I guess I'm the one that gives it, I right? think I can diagnose myself I give it very well. Things, yeah. <laughs> and, David, I, I was advised to call you Dr. Handsome. You, you are a good-looking man. I wouldn't, I, be the, I wouldn't be in a position to judge that. <laughs> and plus, it's a radio show only, so it doesn't matter. Right, right. You know, I look great on the radio, so that's all that matters. <laughs> now, we're stoked to have you on the show. We were going to have you on in January, and we had some scheduling mix-up. But, you know, what you do is just so important, and we wanted to make sure that our listenership know about it. You set a real template 20-plus years ago. Right, close to 25 Henry years. Henry was like a, not even a sperm in his dad at that point. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I was still swimming. <laughs> this is so wrong. <laughs> Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show. Right. Uh, 1.6 million listeners, either are stupid or crazy, you can't be wrong. So, um, but so let's just get started here. Like 1988, Aura, 1988. Yes. This was before the word survivorship even came into the lexicon. This is when we were focused on just like getting the mortality numbers down from like, you know, from like 20%, you know, uh, I mean, the mortality was like at like 90% or 80%. Um, well, how did it I can't even say it. How did this happen? We had a, we had a I don't, yeah. you know, it was something I just, I just saw that teens had very special needs that, you know, at a time when like, normal teens were kind of studying for exams and dating and planning for college kind of was the normal thing. It just seems uh, when I was working, I had been working with families, uh, uh, whose children had cancer and the teens seemed to really struggle with radiation chemotherapy, feeling different, and just worrying, even like if they're going to live to go to college, never mind uh, planning for college. So right. I just thought that it really, it was, a, it was a need, it was an unmet need, and it was something that was very unique from pediatric patients and uh, adults. So uh, When you proposed just, it, did people think you were crazy, or did it seem to make sense <laughs> something the hospital could build? Well, you know, we got our first grant from the Ronald McDonald House, and we, uh, myself and another colleague, uh, just proposed this, you know, this, and they seemed to go for it. They thought it was a really, really good idea. Um, and then from there, it's all history for almost 25 years. <laughs> and so. your first your first client was Octavio, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and I've kept them ever since. I won't let that guy go. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a you know, Teen Impact, of course, is a group, and we just started as a teen group, so uh, maybe you want to talk about that, Tavo. Well, and so Tavo, I don't Impact, know, do you want to go uh-huh. by 
I'm sorry. I call it I Tavo. Call it Tavo. Uh, yeah, I go by Tavo to all my friends. So so now everybody in the in the, in the U.S. can call me Tavo. I'm gonna That's play great. Chris. <laughs> Chris is great. That's even better. That's really, really tight. Yeah. All right. So um, 12 yeah. years old, you diagnosed yourself with leukemia. Go on. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> and and so actually, Tina and Pat came around right as I was at the last end of treatment with leukemia. Uh, um, by then, it was already one of those things where boys were on treatment for like three years and four months, and so this was towards the end of my my treatment treatment, the phase that's called maintenance, and. You know, I it was very you know it was in retrospect very clear that uh, through all these years I had been very isolated. I had been kept away from school a lot, kept away from from my peers. You know, for medical reasons, I had to stay home a lot more than go to school. I was in the hospital a lot more than anywhere else in my life, and that has a lot of. Uh, psychosocial, a lot of social definitely consequences. So Teen Impact came around just as I was finishing treatment, and in many ways it was a perfect time for me because it allowed me to transition, if you will, back into the real world. Um, it allowed me to help catch up on a lot of the 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 uh, falling back I had I had gotten into in terms of interacting with peers, interacting with the opposite sex, and and just being comfortable with myself and 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 developing an identity some that had anything other than to do than just cancer, you know. Even though it was a group that was started at Children's Hospital and that was we were brought together as cancer being the 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 the, the common thread. One of the main things we got out of it is an identity that had that was something other than cancer, and you know it's it's much more than just a cool, touchy feely story. It was actually an essential an essential part of my of my survivorship. It it's what allowed me to then go on, go out into the real world, you know, go to college, uh, get my heart broken, break a few hearts along the way myself, and and you know really <laughs> come full man. circle and be able to, yeah yeah and really be able to come normal. full circle He's and, and now work here. Yeah, that's yeah. what it was all about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just getting back so, into some so normalcy. It really, yeah. it really was was just uh, in many ways, uh, you know, life creating. And people say it's life saving is the cliche. And for my case, it was really life life creating. It really helped me kind of get going on the the rest of my life. Or do you, before we bring David in here too, do you just want to lay out and for folks out there who are first time listeners or who are not familiar with CHLA at all, we've got a lot of things listed here that we've mentioned: Children's Center for Cancer and Blood Diseases, then the whole program, the Teen Impact. Do you just want to clarify for folks kind of what comes under what and how it all divides? Well, the uh, the cancer center, uh, the Hope program is within the cancer center, and uh, we are one of the Hope programs, and I know. Uh, David also he heads the uh, the Life Clinic and he can talk a little bit about that and that's one of the you know that is also uh, a program under the Cancer Center and and somewhat under Hope so um, Teen Impact does lie within that uh, kind of that found you know that's where it's placed um, so we are part of the Cancer Center and we are part of Hope. So let me ask a quick question. You know, we we obviously we are a young adult organization, and we use the uh, NCI guidelines of 15 to 39. But where did you do you mm-hmm. start teen at teen, like 13 to 19, or is there like a bell curve in there? Yeah, well, you know, it's really kind of interesting because we started at 13 when we uh, back in 1988, and just realized that um, uh, pre-teens, teens, and young adults, you know, had very different needs, and we saw all those ages, and we also thought we'd start early on at age eight and start kind of transition, you know, getting kids prepared for their teenage years and transition right. into those different stages. So we do start now our program at age eight. We have groups for preteens, eight to 12, teens, 13 to 19, and young adults, 19 and up. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I and mean, they're, they're all like 
Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm I'm so happy when these programs exist and they're functional mm-hmm. and they. I mean, it's good for us in the sense because we collect the survivors into our community so they can join Kenny in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, You're right. <laughs> but you know, I, I think it's great. I mean, I'm a long-term pediatric cancer survivor, so I really have a resident. Okay. Even James here on our show. What are you, James? You were 12. I brain was cancer? Four. You're four. No, you don't brain cancer. Wow. What do you have? Uh, optic glioma. I'm right. 26 yes. years out. Right. So, like, wow. So I have two mesial blastoma. So, like, these are significant diseases at a very early mm-hmm. age. So, it and I didn't have any sort of uh, patient navigation or age appropriate anything to get me through to my young adulthood. Mm. Did you, James? What's patient navigation? Right, exactly. So, <laughs> but, so again, I'm I'm just sort of cavelling in the sense because I'm really glad that you have this system. Have you, and, and that it's been around for 24 years at Five, this point. Yes. Do you have like right. a whole alumni group of like 40 and 50 year olds that were diagnosed? Yes. We do. In fact, yes, we do. And I think you may actually have a lot of them going to Vegas. That's the office. You can create a, a CHL 18 impact table for them in the in the mess hall. Oh, that's <laughs> great. <laughs> you, you know, I, I've always felt very strongly that um, childhood cancer survivors are a very different breed than those that were diagnosed, say, in young adulthood. You, you just have a whole different experience because you're, you know, all those years of developing and um, and all the, you know, the school stuff that comes up and, and, and everything. And just, I, I think, um, both emotionally and physically, it has a big impact to kind of start early on versus starting with the diagnosis yeah. in, say, your 20s. Would you agree? You know, one of the things, one of the things that I say is, is that, you know, you, you know, of course nobody ever in their lifetime wants to be diagnosed with cancer, but have, having been a survivor of someone diagnosed with cancer in, in, during adolescence and then now having worked for this population for about 11 years now, I've, I've really come to the philosophy that if there's ever a worse time to be diagnosed with cancer, it's during your adolescent years to be told that you have cancer because kind of developmentally, cognitively, you're, you're developed enough to know that it's the big C, that it's something really nasty, that people die from it. But emotionally, you're not quite developed enough to be able to be resourceful, to, to have the wisdom to cope, to develop the coping skills a lot of the adults have. And the children have the advantage of, of being children. So they, they are resilient. They, don't, they, they can't dwell on the severity of the situation. They, they, they bounce back pretty easily because they're not fully aware of their situation and they've, they've right. got the support system built in via, you know, their family, their parents. Teenagers are kind of stuck in the middle of this where, they're, you know, they're, they're smart enough to know, you know, that this really sucks, but not quite smart enough to know how to cope with it in the best way. And so that's why something like Teen Impact, again, is much more than just a nice idea. It's really a vile service for 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 some of the most vulnerable, you know, groups of, of, of people uh, enduring cancer as a diagnosis. <laughs> Um, and and so that's why I think it was really it's really genius of, of Aura and her colleagues to, to to have thought of this so long ago. You're just saying that because you're on the payroll now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And it's not a guilt too. Yeah, he's going to get a bonus. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, my, my her to that. <laughs> well, my comment is that you know again uh, we we sort of cover anyone affected by cancer in the, in the 20s and 30s, but we found that a significant percentage, probably. Mm-hmm. Maybe a third, more than a third, are these long-term peds that mm-hmm. you know, I, I affectionately call myself a Gerber graduate. You know, that's what sort of we, mm-hmm. we, we nickname that. 
you know, because yeah. you, you age that into the to, into young adulthood and you spill over into the young adult crowd. Where, in the sense, the psychosocial issues are kind of the same. It's hard enough to be 22 to begin with, let alone dealing with late effects right. or having no hair or being have a chronic disease or diabetic or whatever. So we, we, there's a great homogeneity that happens that, within our crew. But there is definitely, as you mentioned, a, a distinction in experience and personality. And we learn from each other's collective wisdom, whether you're diagnosed at 12 and are now 25 or diagnosed at, like, at 25 and are now 30. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I, I, one of the nicest comments I've ever gotten, and I'm sure this applies to you, and I know it applies universally to a lot of these sort of longitudinal, you know, get busy living situations, is you know, my doctor cured my cancer, but you saved my life, and mm-hmm. we, uh, that it's so impactful to know that there's a whole generation that are benefiting from this system that I didn't have, and mm-hmm. and uh, I, let me let you go to David at this point because David, you have, mm-hmm. you are obviously a um, up for the challenge of taking on the AYA oncology subspecialty, mm-hmm. um, you want to talk us through your where, where you came from and what what bet you lost to walk into this field? <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't lose a bet. I I gained. Uh, you know, definitely, this has been uh, you know a real uh, great experience. You know, to you know, I'm glad this field has formed. You know, this field of AYA oncology, and uh, you know, my own personal uh, you know journey that kind of brought me into it was um, taking care of uh, cancer survivors. You know, I've been doing that since the early 1990s. Um, that for me, you know, that has that's kind of a whole other discussion. But the whole you know idea of taking care of these young people that that are cured of their cancer and then, you know, are faced with uh, a lot of physical and other kinds of challenges sometimes, you know, that result from the treatment, you know, that kind of brings a whole different type of challenge to the, you know, to the table. But um, it was taking care of patients that uh, were childhood cancer survivors, but then, you know, just as a function of time, eventually they grow up and, and it was being their physician and, you know, seeing them now reach, you know, 18, 19, 20 21, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm taking care of patients who are in their mid-20s, and uh, I'm a pediatrician, and they're starting to develop some problems that I need adult uh, care providers, you know, adult-focused care providers to help out with. You know, it became clear to me just through the practice of all of this that there, there's a whole new, you know, uh, group of patients, you know, sort of developing this whole population that's kind of emerging out of nowhere, which are young adult survivors of childhood cancer. And so my entree into AYA oncology was kind of through the back door a little bit, you know, of of taking care of these young adult survivors of childhood cancer. And I think it really is a, you know, special group of of young people, uh, and, you know, a lot can be said about that. But, of course, the field of AYA oncology, you know, has really sort of built, you know, has, has has you know been erected alongside that and uh now includes much more than than uh you know young adult survivors of childhood cancer we're talking about now young people diagnosed as you said between 15 and 39 years of age with new cancers and you know there's a whole host of challenges that are that are connected with that you know just trying to find people who are you know qualified to take care of these problems getting these young people diagnosed quickly uh getting them on the right types of therapies that are going to be the most effective and then of course supporting them through that whole treatment experience, which is where, you know, something like teen impact or some sort of adult, you know, correlate of that uh, could be so helpful. And Tava, talk to us about the parents, about maybe your parents in particular and, and how uh, teen impact also uh, involves the parents, if, if at all. Definitely teen impact. You know, one of the things that uh, 
CHLA in general and Teen Impact in particular has always been sensitive to is that with a diagnosis of, of childhood and adolescent and young adult cancer, it really as if is as if the whole family is diagnosed. That's not to say that when an elderly person is diagnosed, the whole family isn't impacted, but but it's really a whole other dimension when you're talking about a, a child or an adolescent. And Teen Impact has been aware of that early on. Uh, as Ora said, we started off with just the teen groups, but shortly thereafter, we're able to expand to provide psychosocial services for the parents and the siblings and as well. And it's important because, um, you know, for for two reasons. The first obvious one being that every component of the family needs its own space to cope, to deal, to process what they went through. But the other problem, the other reason is that one of the main challenges you have with survivors, and we start talking about survivorship in particular, is is helping from a psychosocial point, is helping the, the young person transition from the role, and I mentioned this in my own story, from the role as a patient to the role of a survivor to the role of a normal person that just happened to have had cancer before, too. And parents, you know, they're a key component to that. A lot of times parents can be the only the only kind of people stopping the survivor from moving forward. A lot of times for parents it's harder to make the transition than it is for the actual survivor. Uh, and so a lot of times you have to work uh, just as much, if not more, with the parent to help the, the, the patient transition into the 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 necessary you know uh, next next step next role um so so the 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 role of parents in the whole experience of course is 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 undeniable and their need for for support specifically for them uh, in the context of support for the patient is is really vital you know for for the the the, com- the completion of the of the experience of the whole the whole cycle if that makes sense I have a question. This comes up a lot when I do do a lot of industry speaking. The issues of adherence and compliance, especially through survivorship, with with you know, and obviously it's very behavioral. It's very age uh, specific. And when you're even looking in the 15 to 39, even when that there are like different vertical buckets. What what have you found to be the most, um, I guess, effective? I don't know standards of care or or patient engagement practices that that yield the, the the highest potential for compliance and adherence, teens that need to take certain medicines or come back to the, the, the center for checkups? Uh-huh. Well, you know, what you're really tapping into here is, there, is actually uh, a more fundamental question of outcomes, you know, in survival right, in right. Uh, adolescents and young adults. And what drove, what's driven the whole, you know, worry about uh, adhering to treatment regimens and, uh, and that type of thing has been the fact that these young people are not, experiencing the same good outcomes that children younger, you know, are having with the same type of disease. You know, age, for example, has always been for, you know, for many, many years has been known to be older age, I should say, has been known to be a risk factor and uh, and is associated with poorer outcomes. But it's been unclear whether that's because the biology of the diseases is, you know, maybe different in, you know, older teens or adolescents or young adults who have acute leukemia, say, compared with younger children. Are these diseases just, you know, intrinsically more difficult to treat, uh, or is there some component of, um, as you're suggesting, you know, of, of a non-adherence? You know, do teenagers just simply not take their medications? You know, a lot of it is oral, so do they not take these medications mm-hmm. as, as religiously at home like they should? And so, are they actually getting under-treated? 
And um, it's been something I think that in the clinic, you know, in the in just sort of the the real world of experience, you know, taking care of these patients, I think all of us who do that have worried about, and we've all taken care of teenagers, you know, who fess up at some point later in time that, gosh, they haven't been taking their chemotherapy for weeks or months, you know, because uh, they've been putting it under their sofa or they've been sticking it under their mattress or throwing it out or flushing it down the toilet, you know, because they just, you know, they just can't do it anymore, you know, and it's it's a way of exerting some control over their lives. Unfortunately, it you know, it, it's probably not the best thing for them long term, but it's, you know, you know, you can kind of understand where they're coming from. But a lot of research is now starting to be done on this and, you know, moving mm-hmm. from the world of just anecdotal, you know, encountering this to, to actually studying it. And there's some very interesting research that's starting to come out now that is documenting that this really is the problem that we have thought it is, yeah. and uh, and it's actually associated with poorer outcomes. So then, you know, the next question, and we're actually starting to mount some research studies in this area too, is you know how do we address that? You know, what right. are the the things that are going on in a uh, an adolescent or young adult's you know uh, lives? You know, that we can you know maybe impact on that can make this a more palatable experience for them, and that, so that they'll get the benefit of the chemotherapy. You know, adding on to that, Dr. Fryer, um, one of the studies that I was able to be a research assistant on was actually measuring the efficacy of an intervention that, among other things, enhances communications between adolescents and their mothers uh, for the specific purpose of of increasing adherence. um, And, you know, because it's been documented uh, to some extent, at least in a subgroup of, of of young people like like uh, chil- like teenagers uh, on maintenance therapy for ALL, where the treatment's pretty, they're more in control of it and they're they're feeling better. That it's a problem, and so there's also there's already studies on interventions that involve communication and and and, dis- and you know talking between the doctor and the mom and and the patient, and all of that to goes back to the question I was asked previously. It, it, you know, it points to the importance of working with the the whole family, not just the patient, but on a psychosocial level, working with a whole family and the benefits of doing that. And uh, obviously there, we're, from a scientific point of view, seeing that there's a benefit in in enhancing communication and coping between mother and, and, and teenager, um, not just on... On a, on, a, on a level that makes them feel better or makes them cope better, but also in something as important as adherence to medication. So, so, and that kind of work is being done here at CHLA already. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing. Like, you're aware of all of this, which is really mm-hmm. important. There are so many centers that, you know, they don't understand how to you know, implement, you know, age-appropriate communications with patients, let alone standards to, to try to make, you know, outcomes better than they are. So right. yeah, um, Lise? Uh, no, I'm just I'm, re- I'm looking at actually a, a, one of the uh, there's a bunch of uh, essays on the Teen Impact site and there's one titled War, um, mm-hmm. written by a young patient who talks about going into into uh, depression after uh, being mm-hmm. treated and you know wondering as a lot of us have at any age you know why me will it come back all of those issues but. You know, dealing with all of that as you you know during the teen years, um, what is what is the biggest? I mean, is, is depression sort of a big um, something that you really have to deal with um, quite frequently with teen impact? And what are some sort of the kind of major issues there? Or do you want maybe, to? Yeah, maybe that? I would like to yeah to address sure. that. Well, first of all, I just want to step back and say that teen impact does deal with all the psychological issues. Right. That's one of the things that I kind of you know sets us apart is that we make sure that we run these you know. Um, 
really more than support groups. They're really therapy groups, uh, and all our, it, it's part of all our different components. So we address depression, anxiety, a, a big issue coming up, really common amongst a lot of our uh, uh, members are, are bullying. There's a great yeah. deal wow. of bullying that's happening uh, around, I think, teens. I think even our preteens have identified bullying as a major problem. But they're getting so that, bullied. I think that's... I'm sorry, that they're getting bullied because they have the, because of their diagnosis? Yeah, maybe they look different, yeah. you know, they don't have hair, maybe there's scars, there's something that makes them seem different and perhaps they feel different and may, may in some way, you know, express that, maybe mm-hmm. almost like unconsciously. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we've really found that to be a very uh, a common problem and... Um, I would say that, uh, you know, that's something we address in our groups and it's something that people can identify with as members in a in a group experience and be helped through these feelings of depression and loss, anxiety. Can they bring um, their friends And just in feeling as well? isolated yeah. and different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can they bring their can they bring their peers, their friends as well? You know, that's kind of interesting. We're thinking <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna let this yeah. out, but we were thinking that that would be an interesting uh component to our group. There is uh in the past we've once a year been uh have done a night where people bring their friends and we actually have a larger group with everybody and friends can kind of hear from you know, from the patients what it's like to be a young person with cancer and then ask any questions or kind of express their own feelings. But I think to do that in a more ongoing and formalized way would be really helpful. Yeah. Uh, because that is such a big problem is kind of getting back into school, get being, getting back into fitting in and feeling like you belong and feeling normal again. I guess I'll ask the question that's kind of like the elephant in the room. What's your policy on social media? Oh, that's not an elephant. We've been actually, I don't know, Tom, we want to take that one because we uh, we just actually met with uh, someone regarding that. Yeah, um, you know, definitely. It's it's a challenge. It, it, social media is something that we're, we're trying to embrace in the program and is definitely, um, uh, of course, right on the money for our population. But there are a lot of challenges. We being a social, psychosocial program and, you know, kind of, providing our services on in a very clinical level do have to be careful with boundaries and um also um have to be able to to provide opportunities to interact via social media while protecting you know our population and the people that 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 um you know engage in our program via social media so it's a long answer it's a long answer to the bottom line is that i think it requires resources to uh I think monitor. set up and and, mm-hmm. and monitor and things like that, but but we are in the process of figuring out ways to to really connect with our population via social media. The hospital as a whole is already doing that for for you know of course for donors and for families uh, of of children, and so it's just a matter of our little program being able to put something together that's easy to control, easy to to monitor, but um, also has a great impact in, some, in terms of reaching out to people. Well, I mean, it sounds like you guys would be a great case study to educate all the hospitals that have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. Wow. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. One of the things, if I, if I can jump in here, you know, one of the mm-hmm. things uh, that, that's worked out really well at our hospital, too, is the sort of uh, fluid relationship that we have and back and forth supportive relationship that we have of the different programs, you know, that you, that you have, you know, represented here, for example. Uh, one of the things that's been great about Teen Impact 
is that they've actually helped us uh, recruit, um, mm-hmm. you know, young survive, young adult survivors who have, you know, kind of fallen off the wagon as far as their follow-up goes, you know, for their for the cancer that they were cured of as children. And uh, because and what Teen Impact has done is invited the life team, the cancer survivorship team, including myself and one of the nurse practitioners and our social worker, to uh, what they call a town hall forum from time to time. I don't know what or a two or three times a year mm-hmm. where we'll come in and uh, you know give a little presentation to the uh, young adults who are coming to Teen Impact and talk about the importance of follow-up. And uh, what that's done is it's not only educated the ones who are there who are in follow-up maybe on something that they didn't know, but for those who aren't in follow-up, it's actually stimulated them to say, okay, this is something I probably ought to be involved with, and then they'll, you know, they'll circle back and actually be seen in the life program. So it actually, you know, and then and vice versa in our survivorship program, when we see some teens who may not know about teen impact, we refer them over. And I think you've had several patients, haven't right. you, who, who have yes, come into the program have. because they were seen in the cancer survivor program, but they needed that added benefit of what teen impact offers. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Fry, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't, aren't you also on top of all of that now having a fellowship or residency <laughs> rotation through in the, in the survivorship clinic? Um, yeah, we well, really or, tried yeah. to. Yeah, no, you're hitting on a good point, which is, you know, uh-huh. training physicians to be sensitive yes. to this, you know, kind of problem. And, and uh, you you know, that was brought up earlier in the conversation, you know, how do we get mm-hmm. the word out? And, I mean, I think part mm-hmm. of it is, is influencing the training of, you know, of physicians who are yeah. who are going into practice. Mm-hmm. And so we've, uh, in our rotation or in our fellowship program here where we're training you know, uh, younger physicians to become specialists in pediatric hematology oncology. We now uh, involve them formally in a rotation in our cancer survivor program, so that they, you know, learn the issues that these, you know, young people need to, you know, address as survivors. Mm-hmm. And as they get into young adulthood, you know, they're now learning their options that they've got. You know, the physicians are that is, you know, in taking care of their patients that there are programs right. like Teen Impact. So they're, you know, just sensitized to the kinds of challenges that they have. Yeah. And one of, one of the I other think, things that our yeah. oh go ahead mm-hmm. no go ahead I was going to say I was just going to say one of the other things our program offers here that it makes it a little bit uh, you know sets it apart I think from most uh, children's hospitals that we have a uh, what we call a transitional care program which means that our young young adult survivors when they when they're followed here at children's hospital in the pediatric setting until they reach 21 years of age but then at that point we actually a couple of years ago developed a pilot program where we're uh, moving these young adult survivors now into a different setting that is adult-oriented. We collaborate with another hospital here in Los Angeles uh, called Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank, just a few miles away from here. And we collaborate with our adult-focused you know, medical partners over there um, so we have a kind of a, a handoff program where the, you know we see the young adults over there at this in this adult setting, which is a very nice supportive sort of program. And then also, they're being seen by adult care providers who are specialists in adult care. And I think having that transitional care program has has really you know enhanced the medical follow up of these patients. But it's also exposed our our trainees to the the whole concept of transitioning care. And again, it's all about providing developmentally appropriate care. To you know, right. to these uh, young people. Um, or and, you know, Matt, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, Tavo. Uh, just kind of getting back to what Matt said about you know, we teaching other hospitals to to be aware of this mm-hmm. stuff. All of these things that Dr. Fry just said, they're they're 
really something that's personally important to me because, um, you know, Teen Impact or in Children's Hospital, they had the idea of adolescents and young adults long before the pediatric oncology community had the concept of AYA. Several generations later now, the pediatric oncology community has a concept of AYA. But um, outside of, it seems like outside of the pediatric oncology community, this awareness of survivorship, of transition, of like meeting the needs of young adult survivors, both medically and psychosocially, it, 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 they don't see any relevance to it. I don't know how many times in my personal experience, and I've heard other fellow survivors say that as soon as I try to go to a regular, quote-unquote, regular doctor, they tell me, well, you're done with chemo. You've got nothing to worry about. And... Um, I remember going to a conference uh, with uh, the, with the Livestrong, you know, sponsored by Livestrong, uh, where we try to tackle the issues of access to to uh, clinical trials to AYAs and long-term follow-up care to AYAs. And somebody brought up the really important point that, um, you know, uh, you know, really the the most impact would be starting starting with changing the culture of medicine, where you have these young up-and-coming you know physicians really understanding the idea of of survivors of pediatric cancer and of AYAs with cancer and what their needs are so that you know so that there's a, a there's an understanding in the in the broader community well beyond the walls of a pediatric treatment institution i think uh dr fryer and, and his life clinics model of of collaborating with an adult institution for this is is a great great start and now we just got to get these 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 guys that are practicing everywhere to really understand that you know it doesn't end when you get your last drop of chemo right um or a question for you los angeles sure. is a, is a, is a very diverse city ethnically racially financially um, and often uh, teens are kind of the most acutely aware of this often. Um, mm-hmm. Two questions. Is that, do, are there specific needs within different communities um, of teens that you need to address once they come to see you? And then secondly, do you find that uh, when they come together and meet each other, a team impact that perhaps that goes out the window because they're all there? Right. With, with I think you just yep. Yeah, I was going to start with your second one because yeah. what I, first I was going to say the common denominator is right. always the cancer. We right. have had people in our groups from all different socioeconomic, uh, ethnic backgrounds come to our group, and it's always the common de- denominator is the is the illness and the experience, the illness experience. Uh, but I also feel that uh, there are special needs. I mean, certainly for our families, we have um, we have bilingual, we have interpreters. Um, I also want to make one other statement I make over and over, and Tavo's going to think, oh, my God, not that again. But, um, <laughs> but that is that, that you know, sometimes people come in and cancer is only – it's kind of like one of their many, many uh, difficulties. Not that, that again. Facing. <laughs> <laughs> right? And um, – Right. I, I really feel that that's sometimes true with someone who's, like, living yeah. in, in poor communities. Like, we have kids that come in that, you know, say that there's been shots, you know, that have gone through their windows or there's gangs. And, and I feel that mm. the cancer sometimes is only one of the many problems they face. Right. So that's it becomes so even more yeah, complicated. So I call yeah, it we the have stupid to be things sensitive. donut hole. <laughs> the donut hole is, 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 <laughs> is know, the Al Franken donut hole. But that's really this loss <laughs> in transition thing where... You are a pediatric mm-hmm. patient, and maybe you know you guys seem to have a really great uh, scenario built out here. But most of the time, like your insurer won't allow you to see your pediatric doctor anymore. You have to right. see an adult doctor, and even if you may have a report card or a survivor care, you know, uh, 
sheet that comes. They don't know how to read it. They don't know what it mm-hmm. means. They're not training. Oh, you're diabetic? Let's put you in these pills. No, no, I'm diabetic because of this. No, I'm eating these pills. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I'm really glad to see that you guys are really on top of this. And, you know, it, it goes so far beyond the COG survivorship protocols into really getting right. that next generation of physicians uh, literate about what yeah. can happen when you see this patient population. Well, I think the point, uh, yeah, I, I really agree, Matthew. And I think one of the points that uh, that uh, Aura is kind of getting at in raising all of that is that cancer happens in the context of, you know, our lives, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. it's not the only thing that's going on. And, and one of the things that we deal with you know, all the time with our our cancer survivors who are, you know, growing up into older adolescents and becoming young adults is that they need help with um, a lot of the, you know, the normal life tasks that come along with transitioning from from older adolescence to young adulthood. I mean, that's a challenging, you know, period of time for anybody. Uh, you know, there's a lot of flux going on. There's uh, they're you know changing where they're living, their education. They're trying to decide, make some decisions about their careers. They're trying to launch their careers. You know, get first jobs. Sometimes figuring out the whole health insurance thing, and when you're doing that, also as a cancer survivor, where you need to be thinking about the long term and how do I stay healthy, how do I get the monitoring that I need, you know, it's real challenging. So we really do try to provide, I think, a full service operation by, you know, not only uh, if, uh, teaching the young people what they need in the way of medical care, but also, you know, what do they need to do? How do they need to organize their lives so that they can actually mm-hmm. accomplish that as well as, you know, reach the goal that we all have of, of you know, growing up and living a, a fulfilling, meaningful, happy life. Mm-hmm. Well said. That's great. So, I mean, as far as, like, the future of Teen Impact, you're obviously, you guys really seem to have your shit together, pun in, like, literally and figuratively, of course. Um, so, like, you know, we're not FCC regulated, so I can say that. Cool. <laughs> Great. I love it. Um, um, oh, well, our, shit, our shit has to stay together by raising money. I hate to say it. We no, of course, of course. <laughs> but I'm, what I'm saying is, like, yes. I, I, just a final thought, because we got to go in a few minutes, just, mm-hmm. like, the young adult movement, like, whether you're a long-term Peter or someone diagnosed in your 20s and 30s, it really has become a very different breed of survivor, a different breed of, uh, of, of patient advocate or activist or, you know, it's really, I don't, I don't really personally see it being very disease uh, specific. It's very disease agnostic. Uh, we typically don't see our survivors, you know, uh, aggregating in, in, in buckets based on what part of their body got sick. Right. And we're all really about the fact that, you know, we're, we're, we're an age, um, an age-focused issue than a disease-focused issue. Do you think that there's an opportunity to build sort of that third space in the healthcare continuum, or is it too late? The idea of pediatrics and everyone else sort of goes away, and there will actually be pediatrics, AYA, and then everyone else? That's a great That's question. And it's getting yes. a lot of a lot of discussion, you know, medically. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll let Tavo and Aura, you know, maybe address it psychosocially, but certainly from... You know, from the standpoint of medical um, care, uh, this is something that's getting a lot of talk and there's a lot of Mm -hmm. work being done right Mm -hmm. now to, you know, think about how would we carve out, you know, that that specialty of adolescent young adult oncology. Um, It's, you know, again, it's going to be a multi-level sort of thing. You have to have, you know, the facilities. um, There are certain standards for, you know, centers that want to do adolescent young adult oncology. And then you've got to have, you know, uh, well-trained providers, you know, not only physicians, but also nurses and 
psychologists and social workers and right. so forth. Yeah. So, in the physician standpoint, there's some t- there there are <clears throat> there's some discussion taking place right now in some early publications. In fact, uh, some uh, being authored in part by uh, Dr. Stuart Siegel here, the div- you know the head of our division, right. who's also been a national leader in in AYA oncology, but trying to flesh out exactly what the training requirements should be. So I think I think we really are moving in that direction. I think it's hard to you know to, to predict exactly what it's going to look like, say five years from now. But I very much think that that is the direction that we're heading, and I think we're looking toward training programs. Programs that are designed to to uh, equip uh, people who you know physicians who are interested in this area of AYA oncology. They're going to be trained a little bit from the pediatric side, but also from the adult side. So they are going to be a new breed. It's a it's a specialty that you know 15 years ago never existed, but I think 15 years from now is going to be well established. Or since you touched on a final question here, since you touched on uh, fundraising, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we've obviously mm-hmm. had an economy that's been in the crapper for right. for for a while now. What are your greatest yeah. challenges, and is it um, still in terms of targeting people to really understand this population um, combined with the economy? Where do things sort of stand with that, and what's your what's your approach these days? Yeah, well, that's a very good and complicated question. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, you know, we try to diversify where we get our funds. We do have some foundations, grants. Um, we have one grant from the Ronald McDonald House Charities that we'll, uh, we'll be using to buy equipment to webcast our, our live group uh, oh, into well. the hospital, which would be really, uh, you know, it's a wonderful and I think a, a great way to expand our programs at first within the hospital and outside. Um, and when we have, we ha- you know, like I said, we really depend upon foundations, and of course, uh, the generosity of just, uh, you know, our donors, our past and future. So we are. It's always hard work. It's a hat I've had to unfortunately wear much more often, like 99% of the time. You know, even though my love is kind of the clinical and program development, um, it's it's really something that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. I, I do feel that because I've been there over, you know, since 1988, that there's a, a consistency and a building of that. Um, but it's something that needs to kind of be broadened so that it can continue with I'm, or without I, me. I'm actually curious because uh, mm-hmm. by day I'm an entertainment journalist, and so obviously being in uh-huh. Los Angeles and the entertainment capital there and, you know, stand up to cancer largely with the, uh, mm-hmm. has its roots out there. Have there been, uh, has the entertainment industry at all, do they contribute to, to uh, CHLA and your program in particular? Well, CHLA definitely in our program, yeah. yes, at times. So, yes, we have uh, been fortunate to, te- you know, to be able to get contributions from that it's area. Happened. But it's always a challenge. It is, you, as you probably can yeah. imagine. Right. And, of course, you know, we believe deeply in how the psychosocial is so much part of uh, the healing process. So it is not as um, an easy a sell. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, we, we understand that being an organization that focuses on survivorship as, as, right. as opposed to research as well, um, right. the, the challenge in sort of conveying that message. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. So we share that. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, well, we're out of time, but I can't oh tell gosh. you how, how it goes. It goes very quickly. Trust me. This is our 200 oh million show. Oh, my God. I've enjoyed like this so much. <laughs> right. But this is, this is like, it's so exciting to finally have, you know, not not to 
denigrate anyone else that's been on our show. But it's, <laughs> but the hell with them. Yeah, the hell with them. <laughs> you guys, you guys, you got to set it again. It doesn't need to be set again. But you really have your shit together, and you're setting a real great model, especially that that uh, partnership with the donut hole going forward, where you're letting the the next generation of caregiver in the medical community be aware that this patient is unique and they have to pay attention to their specific needs. And you're, you, you pioneered a whole cottage industry, and it's, it's really quite amazing. And, and kudos to all of you. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Such a all right. Appreciate For all you've done, too, yeah. Yes. I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it really right. is a partnership. Take care. And <laughs> all right. Or Cooperberg, uh, yes. Tavo Zavala, and uh, Dr. David Fryer. Thank you, guys. Take care. Good luck. Thanks to Bye-bye. all. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate Thanks. it. Great to be on the show. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was fantastic. Good folks. No, they they run a tight ship. It's a really great program. I'm really glad we finally got to get them on the show. Prepare to activate. Prepare to activate. Prepare to activate. All right. It's time for a closing sequence, folks. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, Internet. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, everybody, that's it. Number 215. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests uh, in studio here, Kenny Kane, James Manning, and our on- online guests, uh, Stacey Gagas, Laura Kuber, Kegu Zavala, and David Fryer from the Teen Impact Hope Program at Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. All right, everybody, next week, join us March 12th for Stupid Lung Cancer. On the show, Dr. Nathan Pennell, board-certified oncologist at the Tosic... Is that how you say it, Matthew? Tosic. Tosic Cancer Center at the Cleveland Clinic. Kate Brown, Director of Support and Advocacy at Longevity Foundation. And in the spotlight, Matthew Hisney, Young Adult Survivor Lung Cancer, second-year med student at the University of Toledo. I think that's Toledo. <laughs> no, that I'm like, is that someplace in Italy? I have no idea The University of Toledo. Or Toledo. It's probably Toledo. Yeah. If you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.com or check out the archives anytime at stupidcancershow.com. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Lisa Bernhard, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday. Good night, all. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.